I don't know how many of you like pickles. Do you know you can pickle just about anything? Anything edible can be pickled pretty much. It's kind of crazy. Pickling's been around for about 4,000 years. Do you know that? You know, they didn't have refrigerators long for a lot of those that time, so they had to come up with ways to preserve food to make it last longer, and they, they figured out that if they soaked certain foods in certain, certain solutions, they would last longer, and they could eat it longer without getting sick. Veggies, fruits, meats, eggs, all sorts of things. Uh, we were at a country store last week, and they had this giant jar of pickled sausages. They were pink. I don't know if I want to try a pickled sausage. I'm not sure. Yeah, it, there's something about that that I just can't wrap my mind around yet. But, point is, there are different types of pickling solutions for what you're pickling. The type of solution you use affects the flavor and how well that particular food will absorb the solution. Now, I think most of us at some point, maybe when we were kids, maybe for some of you this will be news today, but pickles uh, are not just pickle, right? A pickle is not a thing in and of itself. It came from something else. It came from a cucumber. And I didn't know that at first. I thought it was just a pickle in some liquid that made it taste good, right? But it's a cucumber that's been turned into a pickle. Another interesting fact about pickling. Once you pickle something, you can't unpickle it. You can't turn that pickle back into a cucumber. That pickled sausage will never be a regular sausage again. It has changed. Is there anybody here today who's feeling tired of your sin? You've been fighting it for years, and it seems like there's no end in sight. For some of us, it seems like the same two or three sins keep popping up like whack-a-mole. You think you've knocked this one down, and the old one pops back up over here, and you knock that one down, and the other one pops back over here. We keep trying to put tape over the holes to keep the moles from popping back up, but the tape doesn't hold for long. It feels like there is no deliverance from the power of sin. We don't necessarily, for others, we don't necessarily keep going back to the same sins. We keep finding new areas of sin that we keep repenting of and, and trying to get rid of. And, and we find some success, but then we realize that there's just a new area of sin that we have found. And we're growing tired of finding new things to repent of or new areas that we're called to obey. And we feel like we have reached our limit, our capacity to obey. Now, I hope to address both sides of that quandary today through this passage. But why in the world would I start with talking about pickles and then ask you about fighting your sin? Hopefully, you will see the connection as we make our way through the passage today. Our text this morning is Romans 6. It is found on page 886 of the Black Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to open that up and follow along there. I'll be starting right there at the big number 6, kind of in the middle of the page. If you don't have your own Bible to study, to read, to understand God's Word, we have some blue copies of the Bible in the back uh, on that table in the foyer. Please feel free to take one of those on your way out as our gift to you. While you're turning there, let me start with a brief reminder. As this is an occasional series, it's easy to forget what we've covered. So let me give you a brief snapshot of the first five chapters of Romans. Remembering that this book was written, this letter was written to a church in Rome that had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians together in the same church. And there were challenges that came along with that, which we, we discussed previously a little bit. But in chapter 1, Paul gives an introduction and then he gives his thesis statement for the whole letter. 
And that's found in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He then begins laying out his arguments to prove this thesis. And his arguments sometimes span multiple chapters in this letter. And so we've tried to break it up by chapter, and we're, we're trying to make those things as clear as possible. So we've got some summaries going. For chapter 1, I summarized it as no excuses. There are no excuses. All mankind is accountable to God because through creation we should acknowledge Him and give Him thanks. Yet all mankind has turned away and failed to do so. Chapter 2 was summarized as no exceptions. Because this was a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles, the Jewish folks may have thought they were an exception to that rule. Your family tree does not keep you from being included in those who are sinners in need of God's grace. Jew and Gentile alike are under judgment due to sin. Chapter 3 is no alternatives. There are no alternatives. We must be righteous, Paul says in chapter 3. To be right with God, you have to be righteous. The problem is we're not righteous in and of ourselves. So we must have a righteousness that comes from outside of us. And that is the righteousness of Christ, which brings us into chapter 4, which can be summarized as no additions. No additions. The main point is that in Christ we have been counted righteous. That's an important word, counted. We'll come back to that later today. Counted righteous. And there's nothing that we can add to that. Nothing. Which brings us then to chapter 5, which could be summarized as no greater love. There is no greater love. In that chapter, Paul laid out the benefits and assurance that we have of being in Christ because of God's great love for us, demonstrated in sending His Son to redeem a people for Himself when they did not deserve so. Now, that brings us to chapter 6. Our summary for today could be this. No greater cure. No greater cure. Let's dive in and see why. I'm going to read the entire chapter. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're not, that is okay. When I finish reading, I will say this is God's Word, and please respond by saying praise be to God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, 
but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Three points today. Well, three sections. Points are kind of mixed in there. Three sections. One, does justification by faith mean we can or should continue in sin? That's the objection that Paul is anticipating and answering in verse 1 and 2. Does justification by faith, which chapter 5 established very clearly, does that mean that we can or should continue in sin? Number two, we are united to Christ in death and life. We're going to look at both of those aspects. And then three, the fruit of being united to Christ in death and life. So one, starting at the beginning of the chapter, does justification by faith mean we can or should continue in sin? Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died, who died to sin, still live in it? So remember last time we talked about being in Adam or in Christ. That's the two options. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. In Adam, we have a sinful nature that we inherited from him, and that nature deserves death because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all gone astray. We have all rebelled against our holy and loving Creator. Even before the the formal law was given, all mankind was sinful. We see that in Romans 1, 18-32, chapter 2, 1-5, through 5, verse 8, verse 12, 17-24, chapter 3, 9-18, 23, chapter 5, verse 10, and 12-19. through 19. In case you were wondering where I got that. We were all sinful. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and need redemption. That leads us to the statement that Paul was anticipating leading to some twisting his words and logic to justify living in sin, right? So we, at, the end of, at the end of chapter 5, the last two verses, which we didn't get into a whole lot last time, um, so just to kind of briefly, because they connect the two chapters, let's look at them. Chapter 5, verse 20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you can see where Paul would anticipate, because some people already had been twisting Paul's words, he, he knows it's coming, that if, if, if sin increased so that grace could increase and abound all the more, well, then why not go on sinning so that grace abounds all the more, right? 
Paul says, by no means. This is not a correct assumption. The point of grace abounding all the more as a result of the law increasing the trespass at the end of chapter 5 is to make clear and plain the great mercy and grace of God towards sinners. It shows us how exceedingly sinful our nature is that we inherited from Adam, which we then confirm by our very lives. I don't need to go on intentionally sinning or just not caring if I sin in order to increase God's grace to me. If it were possible that I could stop sinning today, if I was outside of Christ, but I could stop sinning today, if that were possible, I could live the rest of my life, that would not diminish the grace needed, the grace required to bring me from spiritual death to spiritual life because my sin had already condemned me to death. But the increase in trespass, what that does is it increases my understanding and awareness of it and my appreciation for God's grace in my life. The more we see how sinful we are, how sinful our human nature really is, the bigger the cross becomes to us. We don't deny our sin. We confess it. Each week we have a public confession of, of sin. We, we pray a prayer of confession together, recognizing this truth that we still struggle with sin, that, that our sinful nature deserves God's wrath. We sing about that. See, if I, if I think I'm pretty good, I've just kind of fallen a little bit short of God's glory, then the cross is quite small to me. But as I go through life struggling against my old sinful nature, I see more and more clearly how much I deserved God's wrath for rebelling against Him in all sorts of ways. When viewed rightly, as my awareness of my sin grows, as I repent and believe the gospel again today, my understanding of God's grace to me grows exponentially, which leads not to self-condemnation and self-loathing, but gratitude and love for the one who would voluntarily take the wrath that my sin deserves in order to make me his own. So not only, as Paul is arguing here, this type of thinking wrong, that we should or could go on sinning to increase grace, it's not just a misunderstanding of the application of God's grace. It's actually a contradiction of terms. Paul is arguing that those who have been justified by faith would not continue on in sin using this twisted logic because of what we see in the second half of verse 2. We died to sin. Verse 2b, how can we who died to sin still live in it? When you die, you no longer live, right? I mean, it's just, it's, <laughs> this isn't, High-level logic. If you have died to sin, you can't go on living in it. Paul makes a pretty stark addition here to his argumentation that he's been making in the previous chapters. He's been talking about death coming because of sin and Christ dying for our sin to justify us. And now he inserts that we have died to sin. Did you catch that? What? When did we die? Did you know in Christ you have already died? Imagine how the church in Rome might have reacted to hearing this for the first time. Paul recognizes he needs to explain this, and we see his explanation laid out in verses 3 through 10, and really the rest of the chapter is fleshing out the implications and the, the application from this. So let's look back at, at 3 through 10. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So that brings us to our second section this morning, which is that we've been united to Christ, His death and His life. Now, Paul goes back and forth in those verses, but I want to focus on one at a time for us. We've been baptized into his death. We see that in verses 3 through 8 very clearly. But first, we need to understand what Paul means by baptize here. That it's not just our water baptism. Uh, some commentators and, and folks that have studied this would say that it doesn't refer to our water baptism at all. Some would say it could refer to both. Nobody says it's just referring to water baptism. That is not what he's saying here. And here's how we know. Upon conversion, becoming a Christian, each Christian is immersed spiritually into Jesus Himself. And we are indwelt then by His Holy Spirit. The, the word baptized there literally means to immerse. We're going to come back to that in just a second. In verse 5, though, he uses the term united with to describe what he means by baptized. That we have literally been joined to the, the actual literal translation of that word is planted with. We've been planted with Christ, which is interesting when you think about the fact that He was buried after He died, right? That we were planted with Him there, and that we have now risen with Him to live a life that we'll get to. The point is that things planted together grow together, and they're of the same origin. That's what the, that word is talking about. The union with Christ is not hypothetical. It's not an analogy. Paul's not speaking metaphorically here. He is speaking of a spiritual reality. It is real. It's the fulfillment of the passage that we read in Ezekiel earlier. I'm just going to read the last verse of what we read, and I'm going to add verse 27 because this is important. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says this, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you hear that? It's not just that you were cleansed and made new, but God puts His own Spirit within you. We'll talk about that more as we go. Let's think a little bit more about this word baptism, though. It's not just immersion. All right? It's not just like you've gone all the way underwater, you've come out, you're wet, and then you can dry off and nothing's really changed, has it? But the immersion spoken of here is an immersion that makes change. Think pickles. That's why I brought up pickles. When you pickle something, it not only takes on the flavor, it not only changes the texture, is affected often, and these things in the color can be changed, right? Those things are affected during the pickling process. But what I found interesting was that outside of the New Testament, this word for baptize in the Greek is only found as far as I could find when referring to pickling something. And so why do I bring this up? Because Paul is drawing on a particular idea here, a particular use of baptism that should grab our attention. If we have been immersed into Christ, into His death, 
That means something. So hang on to that idea of pickling. We're going to circle back to that again. What we have seen in Romans thus far, and what is repeated at the end of this very chapter, is that the wages of sin is death. Sin produced death in me, but praise be to God. In Christ, that death has already occurred. I asked a minute ago, when did we die? When did you die? The answer for those in Christ is that we died when He died. His death was our death. And why does that matter? Well, a couple of things. What this means for our death to sin is that first, there is no penalty left for those in Christ. And we've talked about that in previous chapters. We sing about that as well, that that the penalty for our sin has been paid by Christ Himself. But in case you missed it or have forgotten, let me remind you, there is no more penalty for your sin when you have been united to Christ. He took it all. He took every bit of it. And that penalty was delivered by God. It isn't yours or anyone else's to give out. It is not the teaching of the gospel to go around trying to punish yourself for your sin. Stop it. That isn't what cleanses you from its guilt or its power. Punishing yourself is not going to deliver you from sin. The second thing that being united to Christ in His death does is that sin no longer has power over us to make us obey it. We see this in verses 6 through 10 very clearly. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is a big deal. Many of us get the cleansed from guilt part. We get the fact that He paid our penalty. But we fail to recognize that this, that, that being united in His death is actually what breaks the power of sin over us as well. There have been times in my life when I've been so disgusted with my sin, when I've been so tired of the grip that it's had on me, the power that it felt like it had over me, that I have thought death looks appealing. Oh, to be free from sin's power. I've longed to be delivered from its power. As it turns out, I had already died. I have been delivered from its power. It no longer holds me captive to do its bidding. And no longer can it control my life. At several points in my life, I have failed to live according to this truth held out in Romans 6. I've given in to how the situation or the temptation feels and ignored the truth of what really happened. Look at verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if you've got a ESV, you'll see the footnote there that says, uh, number two, Greek means that you have been justified. I think the translators are fine in in using the word free here because it, it is the same effect. That if you have been justified, then your sin no longer has power over you. You have been freed from sin because that was its power that you were guilty before God. Death set us free from sin. It justified us from sin. Because Jesus died for us, we died with Him, which broke the power of sin over us. The death He died, verse 10 says, He died to sin. So we don't continue in sin because He died to sin and we died with Him. We will look at this a bit further in the third point, but the foundation for the third point, where we're going to talk about the fruit 
of being united to Christ is that we've been baptized into his death. And verse continue and united to his life. Verse 10 continues by saying, the life he lives, he lives to God. So let's look at that aspect now. What does it mean to be united to his life? Let me read verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Doesn't that sound good? Newness of life. That sounds wonderful. But notice that all of this passage is talking about all of our lives. It's not just our character. It's not just our behavior. It's not just our body or just our souls. This is a comprehensive newness of life. There are several reasons that Jesus was raised from the dead. But here in verse 4, Paul tells us that one of the reasons was that we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus, we celebrated the resurrection again last Sunday. We celebrate it every Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday, in case you didn't know. But Easter, we especially celebrate. So we, we celebrate the resurrection because we know that means that, that our sin has been paid for, right? That's one of the things that we celebrate about that, is that it shows that the, the sacrifice was accepted by God, that it was good enough, that it was sufficient for us. But Paul says here that, that one of the reasons that he was raised from the dead was that we could walk in newness of life. The resurrection power, the, the glory of the Father there that raised Jesus from the dead, is talking about His power. His power displayed is showing His glory. Right? That same power is at work in us to give us newness of life. Not just a refurbished life or a rehabilitated life. Easy for me to say. No, this is the kind of newness that comes from being united to the life that was raised from the dead. Jesus didn't just flatline and then get resuscitated. No, he died all the way, dead, dead. Then the glory of the Father, his power, raised him from the death that our sin deserves. And the power of sin and death that Jesus voluntarily subjected himself to no longer has any claim on him. His life is eternal, pure, holy, and in the presence of the Father. This is the newness of life that God would have us walk in as well. And that walk begins here and now. This isn't just a future reality or a hope. This starts now. We see that in verse 5 through 8. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And he goes on. United to Christ means that we have been so united with Him, so joined to Him, that we take on His life, not just His characteristics. It's not just that we're becoming more like Him in our behavior or more like Him in our thinking, but we have His very life. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So we don't just become like Him, though we do in every way, over time, look more and more like Him. This isn't a comparison, though. This is a connection. This is a causality. This, the one necessarily leads to the other. That because we've been united to His life, we will be changed. We will live in His life. Jesus' death and resurrection necessarily leads to my death to sin and walking in newness of life. Now, just to point out as well that we aren't just added to God's family as a separate member. This isn't like I'm, I'm the redheaded stepchild that, that God is... Sorry if there's any here. I didn't think of that. Um, 
We haven't just been added to the family and we're kind of separate over there somewhere as a family member would be. No, this united, this immersion into Jesus' death and union to his life means that, that when Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one as he and the Father are one, like we literally are part of each other now. And it's expressed most visibly in local churches, increasing in love for God and for one another. Local churches grow in the gospel. Them doing that is a small picture like water baptism is a picture of our personal salvation and being joined to Christ, so us living together, growing in unity, is a picture of us being united to Christ Himself. Christ has so tied Himself to us by paying for our sin that His life is now my life, but His life is also your life. We share the same life, one that neither of us brought to the party. It is in this truth that we can find true reconciliation and unity with one another. What could possibly be a better source for our life together? Our life together is one fruit of being united to Christ that is taught by Scripture, but not necessarily right here in Romans 6. He doesn't overtly make that application here. He waits until Romans 12 to make that application. So we'll come back to that. But for example, he says there that we are one body. Though we are many, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There is a spiritual reality that is true. It's not metaphorical that we are called to walk in. So we'll look at that more closely when we get there. Let's get back to Romans 6. and Let's move on to the final section. The fruit of being united to Christ in death and life. The first command in Romans is found here in verse 11. <clears throat> so he spent five chapters, almost five and a half chapters now, laying out his reasons. His reasons for why God has done what he's done, why people are in the shape they're in, the way that God reconciles us to himself. He's laid all of that out before he says, now do something about it. Verse 11 says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider there, remember, as I mentioned earlier when I was talking about the summary of the previous chapters, that we've been counted righteous by God. It's the same word here that is used for consider. Specifically, that God counts us as righteous by faith in Christ. So when Paul commands Christians to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God, it's with the same certitude as our faith being counted to us as righteousness. So when Paul tells us to consider this thing, he's saying it is true. You need to wrap your mind and your heart around this. This isn't like, eh, maybe it's kind of true. Maybe it's part of the way true. Kind of is true. No, this is a settled fact and it needs to be so in your mind, in your heart, in our very lives. That's why I spent so much time on thinking through that second section of being united to Christ. And what that means. It is true. This is a done deal, and you need to think deeply about that. That word consider there isn't just a like, oh, okay. It's not a quick mental ascent, and it's not like considering, is this really true or not? No, it's, it's, it's spending our time and, and effort in wrapping our minds around the truth in such a way that it becomes real to us, that, that we experience it as real, not just think that it might be true. Are you tossed around in your life? Do you feel like everything is kind of knocking you off balance? Is it possible 
that it's because this foundational truth of the gospel is not settled in your own heart. In Christ, you have died to sin. Do you know that? Are you growing in your experience of this truth? Notice as well that this first command that comes in Romans is not just a negative command. It's not just to to consider that you're dead to sin. There's a positive aspect of it as well. You are alive to God in Christ. It's not just that I've died to sin. I've been made alive in Christ. Death no longer has dominion over me. This is not some dead religion. This is not only about denying yourself and taking up your cross as Jesus commands, but it is about living to God. He has raised us and will raise us with Jesus our Lord. Do you know that today? So step one, fruit one, application. Consider, settle it in your mind to recognize the truth that you have died to sin. You've been made alive to God. You have been pickled. And a pickle can't become a cucumber again. You can't go back to the old nature. It's gone. Step two, fruit two, verses 12 and 19. The second command. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He clarifies that in verse 19. Let me read that. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. To present in this way means to to place a person or thing at one's disposal. So he's saying, present your members to one for their disposal. Paul is telling us to stop presenting our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness and start presenting our members to God and our members, uh, presenting ourselves to God and our members as instruments of righteousness. In other words, the Christian life is not one that is only spiritual with no connection to my physical life. Let me get specific. What members might we present? What does your mind drift to when you don't have someone or something demanding your attention? For you mothers of small children, that's very little time where you don't have something demanding your attention. But what does your mind drift to in those moments? What do you choose to think about when you have the option of choosing what you're thinking about? What do you fantasize about? Do you dwell on the things that you want? Do you dwell on the things that you don't have or can't have? Or are your thoughts focused on seeking the kingdom of God? We are to present our minds as instruments of righteousness by setting them on God and things above. A few references if you want to jot them down. Romans 8, 5 through 7. Colossians 3, 10. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. For a couple of examples. You can find plenty. Your mouth. How's that member doing these days? Is your mouth an instrument for sin or an instrument for righteousness? Are you presenting it to God as an instrument for righteousness? Do your words tear down or build up? Do your jokes bite and sting or do they bring joy? Do you speak the truth in love or do you shade the truth to benefit yourself? Or do you use the truth as a weapon? We are to present our mouths as instruments of righteousness by speaking the truth in love, building others up, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. References. Romans 3.14, chapter 10, 8-10. Ephesians 25 and 29. 
for a couple of starters. Your hands, are they idle? Do they work all the time like the world depends on them? Do they give loving and gentle touch or are they harsh and even violent? Do they work hard for your own security or your own ego? Or do they work hard in order to be generous with those in need? We are to present our hands as instruments of righteousness by serving one another, working hard as unto the Lord, showing generosity and hospitality, to name a few. References. Romans 2, 21. Chapter 12, verse 13. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Ephesians 4, 28. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11. Your eyes. Do your eyes covet your neighbor's stuff or your neighbor's lifestyle, their success, their family dynamics, their Facebook page? Do your eyes look lustfully at images or people? Do you seek to satisfy your soul by what you see in this world or by what you see in Christ? We are to present our eyes as instruments of righteousness by looking to Christ not only for salvation, but for sanctification and contentment. We are to see those in need, not just ourselves. Matthew 6, 22. Philippians 3, 17. 2 Peter 2, 14. 1 John 2, 16. Your ears. What are you listening to? As my mom and my grandparents used to say, Garbage in, garbage out, right? That goes for our eyes and our minds as well, but specifically here because the power of hearing. Our listening is important. How do we come to Christ? We hear the gospel proclaimed. How do we set our mind on things above? Through our eyes in God's word and through our ears hearing the word preached and read. So, are you hearing more of God or of the world these days? We are to present our ears as instruments of righteousness by listening to God and listening to our brothers and sisters share their joys and their sorrows, thereby bearing one another's burdens. You see Romans 12, 15, 2 Timothy 4, 4, 1 John 4, 5 through 6. For the sake of time, we need to keep things moving, but think on these things. Consider, where are you presenting your members? What other passages come to mind about these areas or other members that I haven't mentioned? What other members come to mind? That was barely scratching the surface of what Scripture tells us and how Scripture applies this command. Now let's think about why. Why do we present our members to God as instruments of righteousness? Because of what verse 14 through 19 tell us. We have a new master. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Notice the language. <clears throat> it's language of authority. It's language of authority. Sin and dominion. Sin had dominion. It had authority and power over you. You were enslaved to sin under the law. Sin was reigning. 
it says in verse 12, making you obey its passions. But now in Christ, you're no longer under the law. Sin has no more dominion over you. Does that mean there is no authority in your life now? Paul would say, by no means. The authority you are under is Christ and His grace. To be under someone or something is to be submitted to it, to be obedient to a person or thing. You're going to be obedient to something. We like to think that we're autonomous, that we, that we can rule or run our own lives. This is not the truth. This is not reality. You will obey something, either your sinful passions or Christ and His grace. So being in Christ means we are under the authority of grace. We serve righteousness, not our old sinful man, because he died. He was crucified. Our old man was crucified. So how can we go on serving him? We can't. Not really. Your obedience does matter because it's a fruit of being united to Christ. Just as he now lives to God, so we too will live to God as we live in Jesus. Notice this important point. Verse 19, I didn't read it just now, but look at what he says at the beginning. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Paul acknowledges that his analogy to slavery breaks down. Primarily because God is not just a benevolent taskmaster. No, He loves you and gave Himself for you. So we can joyfully present ourselves to God in obedience because we know the heart of God towards us is full of love and mercy. Consider who it is that has united Himself to you. How merciful, how loving, and how humbling to us that the King of kings and Lord of lords would pay His life, not only to make you His possession, but to unite you to His very life. And this life that is His, shared with us, brings another fruit. Let's look at 20 through 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The next fruit is assurance of life, now and eternally. Paul's final appeal in this chapter gets to the heart of why it feels, of the way it feels to live under sin or under grace. Under sin, you can feel free in regards to the law. There is an enticing element of sin that plays on our desire to be our own authority, to make our own way, to be our own God. But stop and think. Think deeply. Paul says, what fruit were you getting in your freedom from the law? Shame and ultimately death are the two that he mentions. Bad fruit in this life and death in the one to come. All too often, we don't consider sin or righteousness. We just go with our gut and how we feel about things. We busy ourselves with activity, often because we don't want to stop and consider the truth. That would risk feeling the weight of our guilt and shame. We want to quickly sweep it under the rug of God's grace and move on without thinking or feeling too deeply. That's because we know that sin deserves God's wrath. Yet we still find pleasure in it. The end of those things are death, as verse 21 says. We don't like to think about death. Certainly the fact that we deserve it. And often we don't know what to do with that. How do we live in this time in between? 
The time in between the dying with Christ and waiting to be raised with Him to sin no more. We live in the truth of God's Word. We believe. We count it as true. We settle it in our minds that this is true, that we have in fact died to sin and have been raised to walk in newness of life. We think deeply about sanctification. Paul's used that word twice. What does that mean? It's the process of being made holy. So let me back up to verse 17 for a moment. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Two things to point out. One, there has always been a standard of teaching that is to be followed, to be obeyed. This is another word for doctrine. Paul likes that word. He uses it quite a bit. What you are taught, what you believe and therefore obey is important. Two, they obeyed from the heart. They had been pickled. Upon being immersed in Christ, we are changed from rebels to obedient children. Obedience to the truth of God's word by faith is the first fruit of conversion. We obey the call to repent and believe. You can't become a Christian without obeying that command to repent and believe. And then we learn that there's more to it, not to our salvation, but to more to this life, this newness of life. And so we continue to obey more as we learn and grow more. And that brings us back to verse 22. Verse 22 is one of the places where we get a good picture of what is called progressive sanctification. That means that God is in the process of making you holy, the definition, right? Setting you apart for Himself. That means that we aren't all the way there yet, but the progress continues because God is faithful to do this work. See, the end, the goal, or the result of sanctification is eternal life. You have been justified by faith. That's settled. You've been made right with God. That's complete because you died with Christ. The old man was crucified with Him. You are being sanctified by living in the life of Christ. His life is a life of loving obedience to the Father. You have been put in the pickling solution of Christ. The longer you stay in it, the more you absorb. Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Quit trying to jump out of the pickle jar. Present your members to the pickling process. Now that everybody's getting hungry because I keep talking about pickles, let me draw this to a close. Verse 23, Paul sums it up, what he's talking about here. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we know it's eternal life? Because of what verse 9 says. That we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. He put Himself under the dominion of death to conquer it such that it will no longer have dominion over you and me. We know that we will live eternally with Him because we are in Him. He is our life. If He has been raised to eternal life, then so will we who have been unified with Him, who have been united to His life. He is our life. We are in Him. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. He is our Savior. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, you have earned death for yourself just as we all have. But praise be to God, the free gift in verse 23 is that God would give you eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let me plead with you today. If you have not placed your faith in Him, if you've not repented of your sin and turned to Jesus to have this life, it is offered to you today. Please listen, consider the truth of what you've heard. If you'd like to know more about that, please talk with me or Pastor Sean after the, 
after the service today. So, to, to conclude quickly, applications from this passage, I've mentioned them, but I want to remind you. Dwell on the truth, consider the truth of what has been accomplished for and in you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And because of that, then, by faith, present yourself to God and your members as instruments of righteousness. Keep thinking about the implications for us, <clears throat> for all of us who are united to this one life, Jesus himself. And finally, remember that there is no greater cure for sin, both the penalty and the power. Don't go on thinking that Christ died only for the penalty of sin. Yes, he took the penalty, but he died to sin to break its power over us who died with him. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Just because you aren't perfect yet doesn't mean we have to give in to every temptation. Fight your sin by presenting your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Don't just stop trying to sin. Present in a positive, active way yourselves to God and your members as instruments of righteousness. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you really accepted Christ's death for our sin to break its power over us, to pay the penalty for us, that you really united us to his death and to his resurrection. God, we thank you that in Christ we can have peace with you and power for living this life today, that we don't have to wait for someday, but that today you have called us to present ourselves and our members to you for your glory for your purposes, at your disposal. Oh God, help us. We need your help. We cannot do this in our own strength. Please empower us by your spirit that you have put within your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.